Coming up today, we speak to the people picking up the slack after their colleagues quit and get stuck into a messy argument about microbe names. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Stemmerton, and joining me this week are Natasha Bernal. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Amit Katwala. Hello. This was the week when Microsoft finally killed off Internet Explorer, 27 years after it debuted. At one point, the browser had more than 95% of market share. The beginning of the end for IE started in 2015 when Microsoft released its kind of unremarkable, Edge browser in Windows 10. Amazon is officially running out of workers. According to internal documents seen by Recode, the e-commerce giant will run out of people to employ in US warehouses by 2024. And it was also the week when long-delayed major UN talks about the future of biodiversity were finally rescheduled. So the COP15 conference should finalise a Paris Agreement-style plan for biodiversity goals, but the meeting was due to take place in China, had been delayed a bunch of times due to COVID outbreaks. It will now take place in Montreal this December. And finally, this was the week when the Nepalese government announced plans to move the base camp at Mount Everest because the glacier that it sits on is melting. The camp, which is used by up to 1,500 people a year during the spring climbing season, is being destabilised with crevices opening up in the ice while campers sleep. It will be moved to a lower altitude with no year-round ice. Natasha, on the Amazon thing, is, is this purely a result of Amazon employing a huge number of people in the United States. So it's, it's just running out of living bodies to work for. <laughs> like everyone's worked for Amazon, whether they like it or not, sort of thing. Um, yeah. Well, there's, there's actually a combination of things going on. It is true that a lot of people work for Amazon and leave, so there's a lot of churn. But also um, this internal memo was based on like where people are located, so proximity to warehouses, availability of labour. So basically you're saying, you know, by 2024, we won't have any workers. And the worrying thing here is that obviously Amazon still doesn't have all the automation that it wanted to replace people in the first place. So it's in a bit of a pickle. I mean, a bit of a pickle for one of the world's most valuable companies. So tiny violin for (laughs) very rich companies, slight pickle. Anyway, what did we learn this week? Amit? I learnt that more than 5 million Americans have got security clearance amid concerns about the overclassification of government documents making it difficult for different departments to work together. That's from this great New Yorker piece about a disgruntled CIA employee who leaked a bunch of classified documents. Um, amazingly, these documents remain classified even after they leaked, which meant that FBI investigators who were trying to figure out who had leaked them weren't allowed to view them to figure out who had been stolen. So 5 million Americans. So is it it's remarkably easy to get security clearance or there are just there are rules in place that should no longer be in place that give people clearance who shouldn't have it it's more like they just give it out for they give it to too many people when they classify too much stuff so that in order to do a lot of government jobs Mm. that you wouldn't necessarily need security clearance for you have to get security clearance because stuff that's classified probably doesn't need to be classified uh, and it makes it really difficult for like government partners to work together because if it's a classified report and you need it, then and you can't get to it because you don't have security clearance, then you're sort of stuck. 
Right. But then they just give you clearance and you join the millions of people with yeah. necessary clearance to access exactly. documents that shouldn't be secure in the first place. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's also this great uh, little tidbit from the, from the New Yorker piece that I mentioned about how when they were looking for these leaks and trying to download them from, from WikiLeaks or wherever they've been posted on online, they were so worried about potentially compromising the government network by accessing the leaked files that the FBI, I think it was, had to buy new laptops and then go to the nearest Starbucks and download the files using the Starbucks Wi-Fi. But then the minute they did that, because those documents that they downloaded were classified documents, the laptops immediately became classified themselves. So when they went back to the (laughs) office of the laptops, they had to be locked in safes inside the office of someone who did have security clearance. It's these kind of teeny tiny details that make truly great stories. So it's almost Kafkaesque, right? You get a laptop to get around a security issue, but then putting a file on that laptop makes it classified so they have to what like sprint back from the starbucks yeah exactly chuck them in a safe and the thing is that the documents were already available to anyone online apart from people with security clearance who could you know you know what i mean it's just a bizarre situation <laughs> very good thanks for that Emmett. natasha what did you learn this week so i don't know if you guys know this or if i've unveiled this but i really like trains it's like a one of my many interests anyway it's okay this... natasha we're, we're here for you Thank you. Um, This week I learned, I I didn't know about this before, but I learned where it went from. So I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the train of the dead, which was a train that the Victorians set up because there were too many people dying and not enough room in cemeteries. So they came up with this great idea where they would just plonk people's coffins and send them to Brockwood, which is 23 or so miles out of London, and then bury them there, right? Loads of room, really great, but you had to get them there somehow. And horse and carriage was really, really expensive and long. So they came up with this train. And I didn't know this train actually leaves, it used to leave from Waterloo. So we could have caught the train and it goes via Clapham Junction, which is very convenient for Amit and me. And it went via Vauxhall as well. So you could get this train. And so I looked up like how much it would cost to get the train, right? Because I was like, you know, there's a train strike going on in the UK at the moment. No, in London, just London. Anyway, it's very London centric. Sorry for all of our listeners from outside of London. But anyway, there's a strike going on. And I was like, how much was the fare? And as it turns out, the fare for a coffin was one pound in first class right? But you could accompany the coffin for like six, six shillings. So that's, that's quite, you know, affordable in a sense. It's like 15 pounds or so. Right. Not too I bad. Mean, I, I guess the hidden cost is someone that you care quite a lot about is dead. I mean, yes, but they used to like carry mourners. But the thing is, is that if you were a third class dead person, they mm. would wait until someone better came along. So you'd just sort of be waiting Waterloo until, <laughs> until you got a first class person to be buried. But yeah, it was, it was really, really successful um, for a little while. But then they closed it down because no one actually wanted to be buried anymore. Uh, but the fares didn't go up. So there you go. Trains. There's probably some really bad joke about the Conservative government and running the railways so badly. that Anyway, we'll move swiftly <laughs> on. Our first story this week is about an unfortunate side effect of the Great Resignation which I shall now coin the great oh bloody hell, now I have to do all the work. Natasha, this week we published a story um, about the people who've watched all their colleagues leave only to be lumped with all of their work as their employers struggle to hire replacements. So how big a thing is this? Yeah, that's right. So I'll take you back in time to about August 
2021 when people started quitting en masse and you might be sitting at a company maybe it's a tech company maybe it's a different company and you go to someone's leaving do maybe it's on zoom maybe it's real life and then suddenly you realize we haven't had time to hire someone new and you think okay well you know I'll cover this job it'll be absolutely fine then the weeks pass the months pass you're still covering two jobs. No one's increased your salary. Uh, maybe you're covering three jobs because other people leave. Um, so on and so forth. And uh, till we reach this moment, which is the present day, um, there's like a huge talent shortage. The people who have left have not been replaced. And the people who remain, the survivors, are stuck, lumped with so much more work, no extra help and no end in sight. And, and this isn't <laughs> this isn't just something that's happening to a few people at a few companies. This mm-hmm. is a trend, shall we say. So what has happened to the people that were, as you put it, left behind? So we've got people that have basically just taken on a lot of extra work. So you've seen companies that have tried to replace people. We're looking at a huge void, though. So the, the data that we showed in this in this piece Basically, it's, it's a dramatic sort of stark contrast. The the available job postings has grown exponentially. The available people to fill those jobs is, are just non-existent. And this is hugely concerning for the people that have been left behind because it means that they are edging towards exhaustion as they try to pick up the slack. So if we look at the UK, for example, over a third of workers say that their workload is unmanageable due to staff shortages. And in the US, half of American workers say they're completely burned out. Two thirds say it's linked to staff shortages, which is a number that has climbed, especially among demographics like women uh, and young people. Uh, so it, it's this isn't something entirely new because it's been going on since August of last year or even earlier than that. But you've got people that are juggling several full-time roles and it's reaching the point of, of you know, no return. That's basically what's happening now. And I guess when all of this started in the midst of the pandemic, as with a lot of things that were happening during the worst months of the pandemic, it was assumed that this would be a temporary shock, that there were weird things going on in the world in terms of um, in terms of people's health with the pandemic, but also in terms of the economic impacts of that. It was a short term shock and we'd come out the other end of it and stuff would start to reset. We'd go back to something like how things were before, but that's not really the case as we're seeing in a whole bunch of areas. And that brings me to my next question, which is, well, if there are vacant roles, surely companies just want to hire people to fill those gaps and avoid burnout. So why aren't they? Oh, you'd think that that would be the, the easy answer, right? Um, but it, basically, first of all, as I mentioned before, they can't. Uh, the, the gap between the talent that they want and the talent that's available is so big that they can't fill all the roles. But it's interesting because it has been a prolonged thing that is getting worse. So our article, again, cites around half of UK employers, for example, saying that they couldn't fill all of the positions that they need to in, in November. And over a quarter of employers expect this to get worse in the coming months. So basically, even if they're able to hire new people, the amount of people that are exiting and continuing to exit means that they're never going to reach that point where they, they're at where they were before, where everyone's doing one job. Um, the, the fundamental problem here is... What 
what people were telling us for this article is that they have got to the point where they don't remember a time when they weren't doing extra work that that wasn't you know compensated accordingly uh, there was one person called Idris uh, who lives in Manchester that we talked to for this article who said he just doesn't remember a time when his team was fully staffed he's witnessed three waves of resignations so you're in the situation where if you are one of these survivors you are just seeing consecutive people you know leave through the door you might have people coming in but they're never going to fill that gap and that's the fundamental problem that companies are facing at the moment there's probably no easy answer to this but why are so many people resigning and why is it so hard where are they going right surely if someone leaves a job they need to pick up a job on on the other end so what's happening in the labor market is if is if it were some definable thing what's happening in the labor market to create all of this disruption it's hard to it's hard to say in an easy sort of way, but I will attempt that, James. <laughs> Basically, um, that there's a, there's been a lot of movement thanks to the pandemic. People have been like, if you have an employer that forces you to go back to work full time, you don't want to do that. You can find employment elsewhere. You can work from anywhere. Um, you can change jobs, change careers, um, and that is fine. A lot of people are quitting because they feel like it is not um, a sustainable job. They haven't really enjoyed their job uh, remotely, maybe. They don't really like it. So there's like a mix of reasons which are uh, uh, very not easily defined, right? Because you've got the situation where you shouldn't have such a big gap in principle because you go, okay, these people have left. They have to go somewhere else. Therefore, someone else has to hire them. But what's happening is that there's a rise in demand in general for people in certain, especially tech positions. In the tech world, it's, it's really, really pronounced where they expected to need a certain amount of software engineers or designers and that amount grows every year. And what's happening here is that even the people that have left were not enough right? They were not enough to plug that gap. So that, that, that the gap that was already existing is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger as people decide this isn't for me, or I'll go work for another company, another country that will allow me to work remotely, or I'll just do something completely different. So it's, it's this huge problem that's kind of compounded in the situation where you have loads of job openings and just people not applying. And you just can't find anyone that wants to do the job. Yeah. So it's almost the situation where anecdata becomes actual data, right? I'm sure there are plenty of people listening to the podcast who have either themselves or amongst their friend and family had conversations about, oh, I'm not really sure if this career is the right thing for me. I'm not sure, you know, why I'm living in this place that I'm living or mm. working for the company that I'm working for. And if the pandemic, I mean, it did many things, but something that it did for people, it gave them a time to take an opportunity to take stock, perhaps. Um, and we're seeing that play out across hundreds of thousands of people's lives as everybody all at once makes potentially quite big life-changing decisions. But I wonder what industries, you mentioned tech there, and we write quite a bit about tech at Wired. So what industries is this hitting hardest? What jobs are people leaving? And what companies are people, um, and what companies are struggling to hire people? Well, it's, it's interesting because it's across the board, but you're right. You know, tech tech is one of the main ones that are seeing um, kind of this this problem uh, magnified right in their sector i think it's, it's interesting because uh, there's there's also another thing parallel to what we were saying earlier that's going on that i think is worth mentioning which is just the amount of layoffs that we've been seeing from tech companies um which again you would say that doesn't make sense if those people are laid off they need to be employed somewhere else uh, you would think that that would happen but it, there's there's another side of things that just the same parallel as people were thinking about their lives and wondering why they were doing what they were doing. A lot of companies are facing a lot of economic uncertainty and they've realised something. And this is something that 
you know, it sounds really basic and obvious, but a lot of people had a lot of good faith and they thought, oh, they'll replace these people. They'll hire people. But companies have figured out, hey, why would I hire someone else if this person's willing to do two jobs? So there's a lot of uh, dragging of feet and a lot of uh, companies not doing anything. And then layoffs mean that a lot of people will just be given more work to do, right? Um, so, so there's that going on as well. But in terms of like who's affected, everyone, everywhere, all the time is the sad answer. Well, that's very nicely summed up. <laughs> aside, from, <laughs> aside from burnout, then, there are wider consequences for companies that can't solve this issue around people's workload, right? Yeah. This, this is a problem that kind of begets a bigger problem. Yeah, for sure, because uh, a lot of people, and I, we mentioned burnout, we mentioned like the, the people, people feeling overwhelmed. But one of the main things that happens when you are in a prolonged situation with no extra compensation where you're covering several jobs is that your loyalty starts to slip, right? And that's something that has been reflected in this article. People are starting to feel, you know, like they don't owe the company anything. They want to leave. Why should I be here doing extra work? Which is, which is totally fair enough uh, for no extra compensation. So companies have tried to plug the gap and say, okay, if we can't hire people full time, we can at least do some outsourcing. And we'll outsource it to some freelancers, or we'll get some people in on temporary contracts to kind of ease the burden a little bit. But that ultimately isn't a sort of a long term solution, right? You can't have people that are sort of short term, um, that, that work in the same way as, as an actual full time colleague that understands you know, the way things work in a company, it's not the same thing. So there's the lack of loyalty. And there's also um, a herd mentality, which happens a lot when when one person leaves, um, other people in their immediate team or in their immediate vicinity think, oh, maybe I should leave too. And especially in companies where you already have the situation where people are under strain trying to cover several jobs at once, one more person leaving might be the catalyst for you to go, right, that's it. That's enough. I can't cover more people. I've got to go. <laughs> this is the end of it. So you've, you've got a lot of people that are in that situation where they go, one person leaves, five people have left. Oh my gosh, like everyone is leaving. What is happening? And that is because of, of this of this situation and it's getting worse. Like lemmings, off they all go. <laughs> um, where there's a crisis, there's often an opportunity. So mm -hmm. What companies are trying to exploit this situation? Yeah, so you've got a lot of companies at the moment that um, let's say some, one person has left and they'll try to sort of elbow in, especially because there's a big competition for talent at the moment. You sense weakness, there's blood in the water. You go ahead and approach everyone on the team going, you know, do you, do you want another job? Do you feel like another job? And especially competitive kind of thing to do in the tech sector. Um, you've got a lot of obviously layoffs at the moment going on in the US, um, which you can imagine some startups um, that might not have been able to afford these people and are rubbing their hands together and going, this is amazing because they might help to plug some gaps. Obviously, it is, is a question of salary as well. But it's it's one of those scenarios where you have uh, circling vultures <laughs> constantly, right? And uh, it, it's difficult for companies that are trying to uh, stop the, the shed of people uh, when they feel like the people around them and in their teams are trying to be poached all the time. And you've got that vulnerability of, of knowing that if you can't pay people more and you can't compensate them more for doing extra work, it's prime for the picking. Something we were talking about um, in a meeting the other day, I think, is as remote working becomes more of an option, particularly in, um, in the tech industry where people just need a laptop and an internet connection, um, increasingly very well-moneyed companies are hiring people in regions that they typically wouldn't 
And that's causing problems in those regions for local tech companies who all of a sudden can't compete. So, well, you know, we're talking about the great resignation and we're talking about people feeling very burnt out because all their colleagues have disappeared and they've been left to pick up the work. But this big change in the world of work is having lots and lots of knock-on effects that you might not consider, such as the cost of hiring someone in South America to work at a startup. Yeah. And it's, it's something that is likely to have even more repercussions as very sort of highly paid, skilled people hit the market. Because, it, you know, if you look at the crypto sector specifically, like you see the sort of Coinbase layoffs, which I, I like to kind of focus in on because these are people who were hired from big tech companies and given massive, you know, salaries. Uh, if there's some, anyone that has been let go from Coinbase, please let us know <laughs> some more, more details. But, um, but you've got people who, who left really good jobs to join a company that they thought, you know, it's going to go really well. And, you know, as, as has happened with many people in the last few weeks since sort of May, um, there's been a lot of layoffs and they've been laid off. And, and you, you wonder exactly who's going to hire these people next, right? Um, but it's not just them. It's, it's like people that were, you know, contractors at, at tech companies that might live anywhere in the world um, are suddenly in a situation where they might be a competitive talent opportunity, right? If you're looking to outsource and you've got a, a place or, you know, someone, some talent is based in a, in a location that's a lot cheaper, it will be ridiculously easy for you to go, right, I will offer you more money, leave wherever you are and come work for me. But that means if you are offering a US salary in another location, it's it's like a it's a huge impact on the economy, right? Because you become uncompetitive and local companies will not be able to compete with that. So you got on, on the one side you've got the sort of high end people who thought they were set for life with like six figure salaries. And on the other side, people who might be on a lot less, but comparatively speaking are priced out of their market forever. So really different vulnerabilities, but in in a sense, they're in the same bucket, which is weird, but yeah. Yeah, it's sort of pinching at both ends. Um, Yeah. So we've mentioned it a couple of times. Um, This issue of the great resignation, um, as we've coined it, other people have coined it, um, and people picking up the slack is seemingly especially acute in the tech industry. And as you've kind of hinted at there, that's a bit weird when the pay is typically quite good and generally speaking there are lots of jobs available so why is it so bad in tech that's a it's a it's a good question i think it harks back to the demand and supply of talent right um it's it's one of those it's one of those sectors where the job market has always struggled to keep up that's why there was this big push to get everyone to code and we need more software engineers. And there's always been, especially like if you look at the UK government and Europe saying we have a skills gap, the skills gap hasn't gone away, right? What has gone away is the ability to be competitive uh, <laughs> on salaries and other, other perks when people can work from anywhere. So for a long time in Europe, for example, it's been the case that the top talent has been hemorrhaging and going to Silicon Valley. That might not have changed very much but what might have changed is that you don't have talent to replace it so you're in a situation where you're already on the back foot as a company elsewhere um now you might be on even more on the back foot as people are are transitioning more and more into those sectors It's, it's, it's a weird scenario i don't think there's an easy or right answer for that as to why it's it's affecting tech more than anywhere else um, but it does feel like that gap was always bigger in the tech sector. And that's why we're seeing it so pronounced there. 
I'm sure this is a story that lots of our readers can relate to and listeners even. Well, you might read and listen. Lots of our fans um, can relate to in lots of different ways. So are you part of the Great Resignation? What's life been like for you on the other side? Or are you one of the people who has been left behind to pick up all the slack? How's that going for you and your company? Let us know. You can get in touch anonymously if you really want. Podcast at wired.co.uk. And we'll include a link to the story that we've been talking about in the show notes. For our second story this week, Matt Reynolds has been diving into the uh, sticky world of microbes and a big argument that's broken out in the scientific community over who gets to name newly discovered species. So Matt, maybe you can start by talking me through the process. Say I've been taking samples from a thermal vent deep under the ocean and I've discovered an entirely new form of life and I want to name it after myself. What do I do next? Well, let me start by giving you an actual example who, from a guy called Brett Baker, who was in a situation very much like you just described, Amit. So Brett is a microbial ecologist at the University of Texas, and he studies microbes from the deep sea. So places like hydrothermal vents or, you know, really, really uh, far down in the bottom of the ocean. And the thing is, is when you're searching in these weird environments that people haven't really looked at a whole bunch, you can find lots and lots of new microbes. And so this is exactly what Brett Baker does. So in December 2009, he was part of a project where a submarine or a deep sea submersible called Alvin plunged 2,000 metres into the Gulf of California. And basically, when it came out with this sample, it was clutching this whole new branch of life. So I know maybe one microbe kind of looks like the other one, you know, maybe it's hard to kind of get a sense of what diversity when it comes to microbes looks like. But in animal terms, this is like stumbling across mollusks or insects for the whole time. It's like a whole group of animals. It's like saying, oh God, we live in this world, we've never seen fish before. Oh my God, I've just found fish for the first time. So if we're talking about the difference between two different species or higher taxonomic groups, really, in this case, this is huge. It's like yeah, having this sample and thinking like, oh my God, there's bees, there's plants, there's all these things that we had no idea existed before. Obviously, this raises the question of how do you name them? You know, we know that scientific um, or you know, creatures have these scientific Latin names, right? They have their species name, they have homo, they have you know, their, their genus name and they have a species name. So they have homo sapiens in the case of humans. Now, what Baker did was name these group of deep sea microbes. He called them something called Hel Archaeota, which is after the Norse goddess of the underworld. And they're part of this branch of life called Archaea. So they're single-celled, but they're kind of halfway between bacteria and eukaryotes, which is this branch of life that includes plants and animals and fungi. So this is a really, really fundamental group of life, but that hasn't really been studied much at all. And like I said, this is where all this kind of new discovery is happening. And these microbes that Baker had found, they joined this other group that he had named you know, quite casually, after Norse gods. So there's Loki Archaeota, Thor Archaeota, and Odin Archaeota. But there was just one problem, and that was that according to some microbial biologists, these species that Baker had found, they didn't exist at all. And that was because they broke every single name that exists when it comes to naming microbial species. I had kind of assumed it was basically a free-for-all and that, you know, he who discovers it gets to name it. And I didn't really realise that there were a set of rules and and regulations in place for for this sort of thing. So when you say, you know, these names break every rule of naming microbial species, what are the rules as they currently stand? How does it work? Yeah, I think there's this sense that, you know, if you see a plant for the first time, you're like, great, that is Amit 
plantus or you know something maybe a bit more inventive than that but actually there are pretty strict rules around um, naming species and that's so we know that it definitely is a new species and also so we know that someone isn't naming the same species and actually amet plantus is actually just like a beech tree or, or something like that and you've just tried to claim it for yourself and a really fundamental concept in this area of taxon- taxonomy so this idea of organizing animals or organizing species is something called type so and that's this idea that it's really important to be able to point to a particular physical specimen that represents a given species so let's take something like the european goldfinch nice bird google it um if you're looking for the type of the European goldfish, what you'll have to do is you open a dusty drawer inside the Natural History Museum storage facility, which is just outside London, a place called Tring. And what you'll do is you find a dead bird and it has a tag around its ankle. And it says that scientists generally agree that this specimen is the type for the European goldfinch. So if you imagine a world where everyone suddenly had forgotten what a European goldfinch was or forgotten what a wolf was or forgotten what a giraffe was... You would go to this uh, type, you would go to this museum and you'd look at this sample and say, oh, I get it. It's got a bit of yellow on its um, chest. It's got a you know a beak that is five centimetres long or however long. So you've got this physical specimen that you can refer back to that is this kind of, yeah, this archetype really of, of the species. And you didn't ask, but the type for Homo sapiens is actually the skeleton of this guy called Carl Linnaeus, who's this 18th century Swedish zoologist who basically kicked off this whole system, set up this field of taxonomy. Annoyingly, the, uh, the bones of Carl Linnaeus are actually buried uh, beneath a cathedral in Sweden. But luckily, you know, there are lots of humans around, so no one is kind of thinking, oh my God, I can't remember what a human looks like. There's not, there's not much demand for the, for the type of humans. Now, Funnily enough, really similar rules actually apply to the world of microbes and naming new microbes. So to name a new species, a scientist must take a microbe and grow it in the lab. So it's a process called culturing. I think if you've ever seen, um, you know, when bacteria are grown on a petri dish, that's culturing, right? You take a swab, you kind of swipe it on an agar plate and you grow it over time. And, you know, if it's, you know, it's a mold or something, you can see it. But if it's bacteria, you could see it under a microscope or you could stain it and, and know that it's there. So that process is called culturing. You basically isolate a particular bacterial strain and you're only growing that on its own. And so for this to be um, name worthy, you must submit, you know, you must grow up this culture yourself. And then you've got to submit it to two different type collections in two different countries. And these are basically physical libraries of microbes. I described the Natural History Museum's dusty drawers. These are like that, except these exist in basically freezers in, in different countries. So there are these microbes that are stored on ice. And that means that if I'm a scientist and I'm like, oh, I want to study E. coli or I want to study, I don't know, this bacteria that causes this disease, I can go to a type collection and say, oh, would you mind sending me one? And I can know that it's definitely that species because they've got the culture in their collection. It's in two different collections, so it's been cross-referenced and it's available for anyone to buy and get it sent to them. And so once you've done that, you've got your bacteria, you've cultured it in the lab, you've sent it to two different culture collections. You can then publish that name in a scientific journal and that name will ascend to this, what's called the list of prokaryotic names withstanding in nomenclature. And that means you've officially named a microbe. Right, so basically if it's a plant or an animal, you kill it, you stuff it, you put it in a drawer in a natural history museum. If it's a microbe, you grow it, you send it to this this kind of organization and they add it to the list of names so why can't he just do that with these new microbes that's not 
you know, he wants to name them after Loki and Thor and Odin and Hela. So why can't he just do go through this process and, and do that? The problem with the microbes that Baker is working on and lots of scientists in a similar situation to him is they just can't be cultured in the lab or we've cultured a handful of them, but they're really, really fussy. They're really difficult to culture. Many of them are probably completely impossible to culture in the lab, to grow in the lab. And when you think about it, this kind of makes sense because it's, you know, think we're kind of trying to culture microbes that live thousands of meters under the ocean. Perhaps they live next to a boiling hydrothermal vent and maybe they eat the raw materials of of liquid fuel or they eat hydrocarbons or they respire methane or something like that. That's a really different environment to just being grown on a petri dish, which is, you know, in oxygen, you know, in this kind of environment that bacteria would have grown up around. And so the thing is, is that lots of these species just can't survive on an agar plate. They can't survive out of this environment in which we find them. And furthermore, they can't survive unless they have other microbes next door to them. So a lot of the time what happens is you'll have one microbe that lives next door to another microbe, and that first microbe will eat up methane, and then as its waste product, it will like give out oxygen or something like that. And then the bacteria or the microbe next to it will be like, oh yeah, I'll eat that oxygen, that's great. I couldn't eat the methane, but I'll eat the oxygen. And so these bacteria or these microbes need to be next to each other in order to survive. The problem is, is that the naming rules don't allow co-cultures, this idea of growing two microbe species next to each other. They need to be a completely pure culture. So you can say, well, I know exactly what is in that. And I know that only that species within that. And so this might sound like a little bit of a niche group, right? Oh, there's this weird microbes that they respire methane or they eat hydrocarbons and all these kind of kind of fancy things that are a bit weird. But this really is not a small number of microbes. It's potentially the majority of microbes out there. So by some estimates, up to 99% of all the microbes out there are unculturable. And so this is a group that some scientists refer to as microbial dark matter. It's out there, but as soon as you try to grow it in the lab, it dies or it's as if it was never there. So you can see its traces in DNA, the DNA it leaves behind, but you can never actually grow that species and look at it, look at it. And the problem is, is that without accepted names, without being able to have names that everyone can refer to and say, I found that thing, I've called it that, and now everyone knows what we're referring to. Scientists don't know how the microbes they're working with relate to each other. They don't know if someone has discovered it before. They don't know if someone has called it something different. And they don't know if maybe someone out there has managed to culture it and they just never heard about it. And so there's all these kind of problems that people might be doubling up on this same work without really ever realising it. So what you're saying is that this this new species I've discovered might actually already exist and without this naming system, we'd never know that, you know, Amic plantus is actually just like an apple tree or something like that. So you, in the story, in the piece which we'll put in the show notes, you do this great job of explaining and kind of exploring this organisation that sets the rules and these really arcane kind of mystical people that kind of decide who, what what names are acceptable and how they kind of go through this process. Surely they can build a bit of flexibility into the for these edge cases like the one you described. Yeah, you would kind of hope, but the world of bacterial naming is like not exactly the fastest moving space. They, you know, they take a little bit of time to, to get with the program. So the big authority in this area is a body called the International Committee on the Systemics of Prokaryotes. So prokaryotes are basically um, any organisms that are not, you know, plants and fungi and, and animals and, you know, kind of complex multicellular organisms, apart from some 
but you know, we won't get into that. That's a that's a complication. Um, so basically, if the naming rules are going to change, someone has to convince this body, the ICSP, to agree with the changes because the changes because they're the group that approves them, and. That's because this group administers something called the International Code of Nomenclature of Prokaryotes. And in these circles, it's just called the code. If someone says, I'm having a problem with the code, can you tell me about this bit of the code? Or we need to update the code. They mean, can you talk to me about this naming convention? We need to change you know, how we name these bacteria. Can we do something with this? But the problem is, is that historically, the ICSP hasn't really been the fastest moving organisation when it's come to updating the code. So one member put it to me like this. They were saying, you know, at one point the committee had been held to ransom by one very cranky individual who shall remain nameless. Luckily, in this case, that cranky individual died. But this person said, you know, often it's the case. No, sorry, not, not thankfully. They actually, they actually retired. They didn't die. Um, that, sounds, that sounded awfully, awfully mean of me, but I actually meant to say thankfully they retired. But... Uh, often is the case that in this organisation you just have to wait for someone to retire or die. So there have been proposals to update the ICSP, but basically they often get um, held back because it requires lots of people to agree on it and there's just not much uh, agreement between these group of people. So it seems like there's a pretty obvious way of differentiating between species that, you know, why can't we just kind of use DNA to do this? Yeah, exactly. And so this proposal someone had the idea in 2016 it was something called the the whitman proposal and a member of the ic uh, sp a guy called barney whitman said look i think we should update it i think we should be able to use dna as type material so instead of submitting a culture of your bacteria a culture of your microbe i should be able to submit its genetic code and then we should use that as the basis for naming and use that to recognize it it took about five years for the icsp to come around to voting on this and when they did there was this huge argument uh, funnily enough they actually organized the the vote and the discussion around the vote on on a reply all email thread which is not the most efficient way to do this. <laughs> There's just this huge thread that went on. When they collated them, uh, all the answers, it came to like 71 pages of, of you know, confusion and arguments and conflicts of interest. And the upshot of all that was, was this proposal to update the ICSP. This proposal was turned down. But actually, this idea of using DNA as type material, it's really not going away. And that's because most of the new microbial discoveries we're making aren't from looking down a microscope and seeing a bunch of different looking organisms. You know, that's exactly how the first bacteria were named. You know, in fact, they were, you would look at the bacteria, you would draw them and describe them. And actually, drawings are valid as type material. It's the same for animals. You can have a drawing of an animal as type material. You can have a bone as type material. Um, and actually, the same rules apply to... Um, to microbes, except obviously a lot of the time the microbes are from the deep sea. You can't even see them, right? You can only see the traces of them. Um, so basically, people are saying, look, DNA is the best resource that we have. And basically, you know, how this works and the reason why someone like Baker is able to get so many new species out of just one chunk of dirt is because they use genetic analysis. They say, oh, I've got this great big sample. Let's go through it and let's just see what all the DNA in there says. And from that, you can basically tell um, how many different organisms are there are and you know, what different species they might belong to or if you don't know the species how different these uh, beings are and you can tell how distantly related or closely related the um, different species within the sample might be and 
if you talk to these people, it's kind of amazing because they're saying you can go down to the deep sea, 2,000 metres under the ground, well, under the sea level, 2,500 metres under sea level, and you can take this handful of dirt and there will be 50 undiscovered species in every handful of sediment. So all these species that no one ever knew about before. And actually groups of animals much bigger or groups of microbes much bigger than species like with huge much more diversity between them than between two species and you can only see this through dna analysis so the whole idea is that we should just be able to use these genomes as type so that sounds like a really good plan plan but i guess the issue with that is that and, and some of the people you spoke to kind of say that this might just cause chaos. It could confuse people if you kind of add a whole new bunch of bacteria to the list of what's already out there with kind of similar names, or you might just get thousands of names and, and just kind of create chaos. There could be this frantic land grab for scientific names, which is kind of how you put it in the piece. So what's happening now? How do you see this debate between, you know, using DNA, the people that want to use DNA and the people that kind of want to stick to the traditional way of doing things? How's that going to get settled? So, when I spoke a bit about how the ICSP has kind of been held hostage by a few members that, as you described, Amit, are really worried about this idea there'll be this land grab for species names, there'll be this, you know, this poor quality uh, data put into all these databases and, and no one knows exactly what's going on. Um, so there's some of those people that have that, that point of view. But actually, the leadership of the ICSP is, is kind of in favour of using genomes as types. So there's this weird sense where the organisation is, is kind of split in two. So four of the ICSP members actually went away and made this new organisation called Seek Code, so you know, sequencing code. And this is a kind of alternative to the ICSP code that you know, no one can agree about changing. And so the idea here is it would allow microbiologists to name uncultivated microbes by simply using their DNA sequences. So you submit this DNA sequence, you upload it to this website, and you're like, okay, that's unique. And if it's over 90% complete and it has you know, less than 5% contamination, we'll say that qualifies as a name. Well done, you've discovered a new species. You know, that, that's your thing. So that has been launched. As of today, a microbiologist who wants to name a newly discovered species that they only have DNA for, they don't have culture for, they don't have samples within the lab, can now decide, do they want to register their species with a seek code or do they want it to just be this kind of vague species in waiting if they you know they wait for the code to be updated and really the weird answer is is that everyone's waiting to see what microbiologists do if enough people end up using seek code perhaps the people from the icsp will be like ugh, we're just gonna have to accept that this is how things are changing and we're just gonna have to up update our you know, organization to include genetic materials so the answer now is let's see what microbiologists do and then that should decide the future, basically. Isn't that always the answer? Let's see what the microbiologists do and that will decide the future, right? You <laughs> should always look to the microbiologists. They have all the answers. Yeah, they do. If only they could agree about these things. That's the problem. <laughs> if only, if only. Um, it's a fun story. We'll include um, a link to the whole thing in the show notes. Do go and check it out. And if you want to get in touch with the show, as always, it's podcast at wired.co.uk that's just about it for this week we will be back again same time next week until then have a good one take care of yourselves bye-bye bye, -bye. bye. bye.